Will you bow your heads with me as we continue to prepare our hearts to receive God's word this morning? Divine creator of all things, Genesis states that we have been made in your image after your likeness. That from the beginning you handed us the responsibility of having dominion over your creation. You blessed our first parents to be fruitful and multiply. We as your people have been charged with the tending of your garden, with the love of our neighbor and the love of our enemies. Yet throughout history, those who claim your kingship have stood in silent apathy or have committed intentional acts of injustice in your name. Our generation is no different. Time and progress have not brought about a solution to the selfishness of man's heart, for it is an insatiable hunger. Our comforts and our abundance should weigh heavy on us. Unchecked, these blessings become idols, causing us to set our minds on earthly things. Holy Spirit, we need you. It's through you that our hearts are humbled, softened so that we no longer desire to be enemies of Christ. This is not a war against flesh and blood, not a war against those who react in fear, who we react to in fear simply because they seem so different from us. Yahweh, you are the God of all peoples. You are the God of all tribes and all nations. All will be subject to your throne room at the last days. What foolishness it is to rely on political parties, patriotic idealism, or earthly institutions to bring about change. Submission to you and you alone is the only solution. Give us guidance today through your word as Hans teaches us on how to be engaged in your kingdom's work as we continue to hope for your quick return. It's for the glory of your name, Yahweh, that I ask these things, both now and to the day of eternity. Be your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You can have a seat. Why don't you grab your Bibles and... Uh, your pens and notebooks, and you can open up to Mark. We're going to be uh, starting in Mark 11 and Amos 8. So you can put your fingers into two spots in your Bible, Mark 11, and then if you need to, you can go look at your table of contents to find Amos. He's one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament there. Mark 11 and Amos 8. We just concluded Mark 13, a wonderful section of the gospel in which Jesus gave us his final major discourse in that chapter, we looked at Jesus' place as conquering king and final judge. And I would highly recommend and encourage you to go back and re-listen and watch uh, those teachings to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks, if you haven't seen them already. What we're going to be discussing is a, a practical application of the truths that we learned in Mark 13. And so as a jumping-off point today, let's do a quick recap of what we've learned in Mark 13 and the preceding chapters one of the biggest themes in the midst of Mark is Jesus as King, Jesus as Lord. And at this point in the gospel account that we're at with Mark 13, Jesus is nearing the cross. And chapter 14 that we'll step into at the end of this miniseries will initiate the last days of his life. And so Jesus in Mark 13, as final prophet and ultimate judge, he pronounces a judgment upon Israel. And he does so with finality. Their religion to the outside world seemed busy. It seemed fruitful. If you went and stood in the temple, it would have looked like everybody was bustling about and the religion was, was alive, but it actually wasn't. There was a lack of loyalty to Yahweh above all other gods. People were blinded to their own idols, and yet they were intermixing their idols with Yahweh, thinking that they were worshiping Yahweh. There was a false religious fervor that masked dark hearts and a lack of love for one another and injustice in the way that they treated one another and treated their enemies. So Jesus comes along here in Mark 11, where I've had you turn, and he enters Israel, specifically Jerusalem, as Messiah and King. And he's largely unknown other than being this kind of just annoying rabbi and prophet that is, is saying some things that are odd, but he's largely unknown to the leaders and to the people. And Mark paints this picture of Jesus 
riding in on a donkey, being the king that's coming. And there in verse 11, he enters Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And it says, when he had looked around at everything in the temple, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He, in essence, looked, wasn't impressed, and passed by. Now, then he basically steps into a statement here in verses 12 through 14. It's a little bit odd. It's, it's very symbolic. And it seems out of character for Jesus, but it tells us what happened there in verse 11. Look at verses 12 uh, through 14 there, Mark 11, 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season, the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. it sounds kind of mean, right? Jesus, why are you being so mean to this poor little fig tree? Well, he's using it as a symbol. He did the same thing. He walked into the supposedly fruitful, the leafing temple and religious system and said, there's nothing here. It's not unlike Christians who from the outside look very religious and know all the words and all the verbiage and may even listen to the Christian music and watch the Christian movies and post things that seem Christian on their social media. But underneath, when you go to look for fruit in their life, there's nothing there. And so Jesus looks and he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. This idea of figs and the fig tree is an Old Testament symbol of Israel where it comes from multiple spots in the Old Testament. But let's look at Amos where I had you put your finger and hold on to there in Amos 8. And you're going to see a similar idea, but I really think that Jesus here in Mark 11 and also in Mark 13 is pulling from Amos, especially chapters 8 and 9. Take a look at Amos 8.1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And to the Jews, that would have been figs. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit, right? He really emphasizes this. Now, what he's going to go on to say is that basket is full of stinking, rotting fruit. It's not good fruit. Look at what the Lord says. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. And then he goes on to say what it is that he's angry with them for. They trample on the needy, verse 4. They bring the poor of the land to an end. They do all their religious things, but they say, let's hurry up and get past church, right? In essence, the Sabbath. Let's hurry up and get past the worship so we can get about spending money and buying and capitalism because we've all got things to do and we've got to build our own kingdoms, right? That's what's going on there in verse 5. Let's hurry up and build our own kingdoms. Let us make ourselves great. And then he says in verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise uh, like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord God, notice how similar this is to language we've heard in Mark 13, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And then if you skip forward to verse 1 of chapter 9, look at what he says is going to happen to the temple when he finally brings judgment upon them. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. In other words, when final judgment comes upon Israel for their lack of actually stepping into covenant with Yahweh, the temple itself will fall and people will be dispersed. Well, this is what actually is happening because in Mark 13, the prophet Amos foresaw judgment upon Israel if they did not repent and turn back to the Lord in fullness of heart, if they didn't get rid of their false religion. And 120 years later after Amos, partial destruction was brought by Babylon and the people were even exiled, but the Jews returned to the land and they rebuilt the temple. But then another 600 years later, so basically 750-ish years later, from Amos, Jesus appears on the scene and uses similar imagery as what's being described here in Amos 8. Israel would be destroyed, the temple would be leveled brick from brick, and this time Jesus pronounces a judgment of finality on Israel. He then uses that same imagery. If you go back, go back to Mark 13, 
He uses the same imagery, the symbolic language of uh, the idea of a fig tree. And he uses it at the end of chapter 13. Take a look at Mark 13, 28 with me. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. He's saying, hey, if you get my drift, things are about to happen. So also, when you see these things take place, and we had, we've gone through in previous weeks what that's talking about, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, Jesus uses this imagery of a fig tree putting forth leaves. And when he starts to, it starts to do that, when you start to get into that season, verse 29 says, all the rest of Mark 13 that's been discussed will be near. But specifically, what's he talking about? What will become near? Well, we talked last week about that he, he is near. It can also be translated as it. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 31, he, a parallel text, he tells us the fullness of what it means. Luke 21, 31 says, So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Everybody say kingdom of God. Jesus uses this imagery to say the kingdom of God will be near when you see these things take place. And as we've been talking about a ton, that happened, as I submitted to you the last few weeks, in AD 70. AD 70, in the temple destruction, uh, the slaying of Jerusalem, the uh, dispersion of the people, this was a fulfillment of what Jesus had been saying. And it was almost a nail in the coffin, if you will, a finality that the temple system of Israel was done with and the new king, the Messiah, the new system with the new sacrifice had been enthroned and put in place. And this is what Jesus describes there in Mark 13, 26 through 27. It says there, They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. In essence, you will have a king enthroned, and then you will have the subjects of that king draw others into his kingdom. And in this portion, Jesus is saying why all this is such a big deal. And this is imagery taken as we've seen multiple times, and I've almost basically run this into the ground, but I'm going to show you again. This is from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, and verse 27, a text you should become very well acquainted with. The, the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? To the people of the saints of the Most High. That's us. That's the church, those that are truly his. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. To summarize it, when Jesus came to earth, there were two very parallel miraculous works that occurred through the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. First, we have the fact that Jesus was given over to the kingdom of darkness, and he was killed through the crucifixion. But as the Son of God, he proved himself more power and powerful and victorious, and death could not hold him, and he raised from the dead three days later, proving that he was God incarnate and the Messiah. He then ascended into the heavenly realm to take, pla take his place as the Son of Man, the one over whom uh, all, all realms and dominions would obey and submit. And he was having uh, authority over these various realms. But secondly, in that death on the cross, Jesus was the perfect sinless sacrifice. He was given for you and for me, and our sin was placed upon him as the sacrificial lamb that would take away the sins of the world. He died in your place and mine as a substitution so that we would be seen as justified and forgiven in the eyes of the Father God. And as part of this forgiveness, we were reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And another way to say this, guys, is that we were brought into the kingdom of God as his citizens, born again into a new realm with a new king, our lives no longer our own. And given the Holy Spirit, which reveals to us a new way of living and serving God. And this is what was described in Mark 13, 26 through 27, with the lifting up of Christ and the taking down of the sacrificial system and the temple that would be fulfilled in, in uh, 70 AD by the Roman Empire. The people were dispersed, the city was leveled, the temple was destroyed brick by brick. 
And now, as we described for verses 32 through uh, 36 there last week, we exist as citizens of the kingdom of God, sons and daughters of the Father God, in the midst of a world that has yet to fully realize that it's been conquered by the Messiah. We exist in the kingdom that is here but not yet, And one day, Jesus will return to put it fully in place and institute a reign of peace and shalom in the restored heaven and earth. So we wait for that day with expectation. But we're also busy during that time, being about his work while we wait, so he can find us doing so when he returns. There's your recap of where we're at in Mark 13. This is the theological truth for what we are now going to think about and we're going to spend time on in the next few weeks. Because it's great, we hear this phrase, kingdom of God, Jesus is our king, we sing it in songs, we leave the doors, we go about our business. What does it actually mean for us to be part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean that Jesus is your and my king? What do we do as the kingdom of God when we're surrounded by a world in chaos and it seems as though the kingdom of God will never come? How do we act as the kingdom of peace with hope, obedience, and endurance in the midst of chaos? Well, I hope to give some food for thought on this over the next few weeks with today as the introduction. And so I've entitled today's sermon, The Call to Be the Kingdom of God in the Midst of Chaos. The Call to Be the Kingdom of God in the Midst of Chaos. And I pray, and I've been praying this week, that this would not be one more sermon where we go, great, We're the kingdom of God, yay, and we go about our business. But that we would truly ask the question, what does it mean to answer this call? To be the kingdom of God, not when Jesus returns, but right now while he's enthroned, awaiting his second return. In order to simplify it for ourselves, we've long held to the definition of a kingdom as three things. Can you guys remember what it is? It's a king reigning over a people. Everybody say it with me. A king reigning over over a people. Three parts. Our belief, because it's what the Bible states time and time again, is that this kingdom began with Christ's enthronement and was fully implemented in the heavenlies and in the hearts of those that are truly Christ as his spirit was poured out. And it will be fully implemented into all the cosmos and creation at Christ's second coming. And so we have seen through history and even our own lives that when life is going well and there is little chaos It's super easy to be a citizen of heaven, isn't it? Because everything's going your way, and therefore the king is good because he's doing everything whose way? My way. The king's way, right? But it becomes especially hard when suffering or trial or tribulation come because that is where we find out if the true king actually rules in our life or if we do. In most of the New Testament, but especially Mark 13 and its parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus gives this picture of the last things to the church to give them courage in time of difficulty. He calls them and he calls us to be the kingdom of light every moment of every day amidst the suffering and influence of the kingdom of darkness that we see going on all around us. It seems like it's going on even more than usual. And so one can immediately think of many of Jesus' words, but one of my favorites in this line of thinking is John 16, 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Do you guys totally claim that proclamation of Jesus? That's a promise that we wake up in. Today, Jesus, I know I will have tribulation. Thank you for your promises, right? But take heart. I have overcome the world. When you read the New Testament, there is pretty much no statement whatsoever that Christ's people will ever escape pain. None. Only in America could we dream up the idea that to be a Christian is to be comfortable. The New Testament says nothing about that. We hear these words and we love this idea of the kingdom, but what does this mean practically, especially in times like these? where everything is so mixed up and so chaotic and seemingly so hopeless. In an effort to answer that question, the next few weeks will be dedicated to giving us practical understanding of what it is to answer the call to be the kingdom of God in the midst of chaos. 
So let's begin with the reasons why we need this topical series right now. I want to give you some reasons first as to why I decided to kind of pause in the midst of Mark 13 and why I went to the elders and said, let's, let's do this mini-series. Uh, first is this. The point of eschatology is to provide courage amidst chaos. Write that down. The point of eschatology is to provide courage amidst chaos. First, we want to follow the lead of the New Testament writers. As Jesus has been describing in Mark 13, amongst many other places in the New Testament, the early church in the first century underwent horrific persecution and saw terrible suffering. And so Jesus and other writers in the New Testament knew that they needed to provide an, uh, a, a sense of encouragement, and they needed to embolden this new small sect of people made up of some of the folks that are on the lowest rungs of the societal ladder. And so how did they do so? They did so through eschatology. Just think with me for a moment about all that they were dealing with. This group that was no bigger than the few thousand we see at the beginning of book, the book of Acts, it's made up of mostly Jews with many, as I said, on the poverty level, probably indentured servants or slaves, very low societal standing. And as they grew throughout the first century, they grew exponentially in number, but they were dealing with poverty and famine and sickness, death persecution, torture, threat of annihilation. And what they needed was not false hope or misdirection. It wasn't more earthly power or standing. They needed courage to stand firm in the midst of all the chaos that they faced. They needed to be encouraged. To be encouraged in our day often means something different, though. It means to have positive affection showered upon you. It means to feel fluffy and happy and wonderful. But that is not the origins of the word encourage. To be encouraged is to be given courage in spite of the hopelessness that surrounds you. It's to be given strength in the face of pain or grief. I'm kind of old, so I think back to Braveheart. How many of you have ever seen the movie Braveheart? Anybody in here? Okay. You know the scene at the very end where he screams, as he's getting like ripped apart and tortured and all of his buddies are like, oh, we lost, we're all going to die. There's a sense, even in that movie, as he's crying out, as he's dying in pain and grief, that his followers are encouraged to keep the fight going. To be encouraged is to be given strength in the face of pain or grief. It's to stand firm. The authors of the New Testament, the leaders of the early church, including our Lord and King, knew that this ragtag band of believers needed to be given strength in the face of the pain that they faced. And that kind of strength does not come from speaking falsehood or painting things over to hide reality. It doesn't come from thinking that if we elect the right person or get the right person in place, we're finally going to have the perfect society. It comes from speaking truth and standing firmly on that truth no matter what comes. I was reminded recently by a very wise psychologist friend that a person of in integrity does not ebb and flow to the circumstances around them. They decide what kind of person they want to be that reflects Christ in the midst of hard circumstances. And I'd say the same for a good church. A church of integrity does that same thing. What kind of church, dear friends, do we want to be? What kind of body of believers, what kind of Christians do we want to be regardless of what is happening around us? This is the question we really need to ponder, considering all that we are dealing with. COVID, the state of our country, racial tensions that have overflowed into the streets, political tensions, the splintering of the church in America. These are not issues that will disappear anytime soon. Dear brothers and sisters, we are in a changed time and season, and it will likely not resolve in going back to the quote-unquote normal that we once knew. We're in a changed time. And so regardless of when Christ is returning, we can look to our Christian forebearers that span 2,000 years and take on the courage to stand strong within the chaos just as they did. This is the message you see throughout the New Testament. And we unfortunately don't often see it because we're removed from it and often do not read it in its original context because we're looking for fluffy passages that make us feel the wrong kind of encouraged. But if we read it as a collection of letters given to the church for their encouragement in the midst of chaos, 
we start to actually see it for what it's worth. Look, for example, at just one example here in 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Paul, right at the beginning of that letter, says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. It makes our earlier reading of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, make a ton of sense in this idea of enduring and suffering. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In most of Paul's writings, you see theology that leads to action as kingdom citizens no matter what comes your way. Encouragement to be God's people regardless of the circumstances. So we embark on this series discussing how to be the kingdom of God amidst chaos because it's what we have been taught to do so by our Christian origins in the New Testament. And Mark 13 was a great foundation for that, as we were called within it to hope, obedience, and endurance in the midst of suffering. And so that's the first reason that we're embarking upon this mini-series, because the point of the eschatology that we were in is to provide courage amidst chaos. But secondly... One of the reasons we're doing this is because the word warns about the need to endure amidst suffering. You might say, Hans, why the word warn there? Why is it that the word warns about the need to endure amidst suffering? Well, as shepherds, we know how easily we can all be caught up in the schemes of the enemy and fall away. Guys, in in 10 years of ministry at this church and in years before that, almost two decades of ministry at this point, uh, including the time I was a lay leader, I've never ever seen someone fall away in a, uh, a, a fantastically dramatic sense where Satan shows up with a pitchfork and horns and there's smoke and fire and then somebody disappears. No, it's always very normal seeming. They just fall away. And you check in with them later and they're not following the Lord with the same passion. They're not serving the Lord's people. They've become the king of their own life and it's very quote unquote normal. Satan works in these kind of ways. And when COVID-19 hit, one of the first things that various editorials and articles talked about on the internet was the fact that trial and tribulation winnows the church. It causes those who are struggling to become the stragglers at the back of the pack like gazelles where the lion of the enemy comes to devour their faith. They get picked off. And this was a problem in the first century church and it's a problem today in the midst of all that we're dealing with. And so the word regularly warns us to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith and endure. When the Bible says to watch, it's not saying stand and stare at the sky and wait for Jesus to come. It's talking about be at war, be on your guard because he's coming. So don't get taken out by the enemy. Hebrews 3 verses 1 through 14 speak of this very clearly. Take a look there with me. Turn there in your Bible. It's in the New Testament towards the back. If you hit James, you've gone too far. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 14. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, notice this, if indeed We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Endurance. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. 
as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters. In other words, be warned. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. What's that mean, guys? Every day. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Great, let's stop there, shall we? We've come to share in Christ. No, what's it say? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Endurance. Faithfulness, which is at the core of endurance, is one of the primary characteristics of God. And so it should characterize us as Christians as well, especially when trial and tribulation come. And dear church, I see, I have evidence in front of me that you want to endure. That's why you're here. That's why you might be online listening to us from your homes. You're listening to the word of God. You want to endure. And the Bible suggests that the key to enduring when trials are stretching us thin is to press into God and, as we just read in Hebrews, to press into one another. I love the picture of the threefold cord in Ecclesiastes 4.12. You guys have probably heard this at many weddings, but it's actually not about marriage alone. It says this, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The picture is that when trial and suffering comes, a single cord or even a double cord will break. But when three cords go together and are under pressure, the two outer cords wrap tighter and tighter around that third cord in the center, and it's brought under strain. And in that, they become collectively stronger while independently stretched. It's a picture of Christian fellowship, where we collectively pull tight around Christ by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We don't wander off into isolation. We don't start to get bitter at one another which is our tendency as humans when we're under strain. Instead, we pull tighter around one another and around Christ and his word. And notice that it's not when it's easy. It's actually when you're under strain. Dear brothers and sisters, I have watched as many of our number in this church have fallen deeper and deeper into isolation and disconnection. Now, whatever the reason, we need one another and we need to care for one another We need to not blame one another for that disconnection. We need to instead fight against it and wrap tightly around the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that's in our midst. Now is not the time for splintering, conflict, or self-focus. It's the time for us to bind around one another in strength, to hold one another up and give courage when our brother or sister has none. It's time for those of us that when we're weak, we raise our hands and say, help. And those that might have courage in the moment to come around and encircle us with love and care and provision. Now is the time to cling to Christ and press into one another because without one another, we are quickly broken and our gospel witness quickly loses its power. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. Now is not the time to fall to the lies of the enemy that you can weather this storm on your own. Now is not the time to retreat into self-isolation and loneliness. Now is the time to understand that to answer the call to be the kingdom of God in the midst of chaos, we need each other because these are difficult times. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. I came across this quote from the Prince of Preachers last week, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You say it is the pastor's business to look after the church. I know it is. But the true pastor's wisdom is to set the members of the church looking after one another. In my own case, the pastorate of one person over 5,000 members is ridiculous, unless it be exercised by impressing all the members with the necessity, the duty, the privilege of mutual oversight, each one seeking to do good to the other as he hath opportunity. Now, I am nowhere near as powerful a preacher or saint as Spurgeon. I think I got him by a few inches in height, but that's about it. But I would say the same thing for our church that's miniature in comparison of only 250 people. 
We each as members of the covenant community of Mission Fellowship have the necessity, the duty, the privilege of mutual oversight, each one seeking to do good to the other. In order for us to weather this current storm, dear friends, we need each other in the fellowship of the Spirit. And I know that this is your desire because the last reason I think that we need this miniseries right now is the desire of this church to glorify God. Over the last six months, we've had a lot of hard things hit us as a society. But then also as a church body, we've gone through the ringer. COVID-19 knocked us back as a world. But then in the middle of that, political unrest hit. And then racial tensions overflowed as well. And then most recently as a church, we've had to work through some of our first difficulties as a membership dealing with conflict and church discipline for really the first time as a church. But in the midst of all of this, I've been given courage by some of you as you've approached me to have good conversations and ask tough questions and propose differing viewpoints. Let me spend a quick moment summarizing the topics from those conversations, and then we'll get to the application for today. I've had conversations regarding confusion as to what it is to be a Christian right now. Hans, what is it to be a Christian? These people say they're Christians and they say no masks. These people say they're Christians and they say always wear your masks. Hans, what is it to be a Christian? This person says vote for Biden and this person over here says they're a Christian. They say vote for Trump. And all of them are saying that if you don't, you're not a Christian. What is it to be a Christian? I've had conversations regarding how to engage one another on tough topics and have hard conversations. People in this church are worried that they'll offend by engaging in these tough topics. But folks, we won't be sanctified without doing so. And we can do so without harming one another. And so the questions and conversations have asked, asked the question, how do we disagree and yet stay unified? And this has led to conversations regarding conflict and reconciliation in the church. Whether it be church life issues, philosophy of ministry, or political disagreement, how do we communicate in truth and love with one another well and yet stay unified if we disagree? And if we've had conflict, how do we reconcile in a way that glorifies Jesus? And lastly, in the shadow of so many weird things going on environmentally, politically, and societally, I've had conversations about how Christians are to approach the second coming of Christ and the end of this age. Should we be having prophecy updates and spend our time looking at current events? Should we get more politically involved? What should we do? And I can see from so many of you in this church through these conversations that your desire is to glorify God, but we often feel helpless and small in the midst of what is going on all around us. Satan speaks lies to us that we are insignificant in this fight of the kingdom of God, and with all the voices and noise that crowd us, we don't know what to do. Does that feel like you? But dear saint, all of this is a lie. You are significant and your effort and endurance matters to the kingdom of God in a giant way. And so we need to press in to hear practical application of how we can glorify God in this body, at this time, in this place. How we can be the kingdom of God in the midst of a world of chaos. And that, dear friends, is my reasoning for this short series. So let's begin this morning with some practical application now that we've explained the reasons for why we're doing this, here's the question, the first question we need to ask. Where do we even begin? We hear all this kingdom talk and Jesus is our king. And then when we leave these doors, how does it practically apply to our lives? Where do we begin? Well, let me give you some very practical things. First, we need to hear the call into the kingdom and submit our lives to Christ. And you might say, Hans, come on, let's move past that. We're all Christians here, right? This, you know, this is already there. Dear church, I would say we really need to ask if this is true in our lives. You might come here every single Sunday. You might say, Jesus has forgiven me for my sins. But when you walk out these doors, is your life your own or is it Christ's to command? I know that for me, the first large portion of my life as a Christian, I operated in the knowledge that Jesus had died for my sins and forgiven me. But I had no realization that to be a disciple was also to be a citizen of the kingdom of God that is here but not yet. In essence, my walk was nothing more than a moral, conservative American who wanted to go to the good place when I died. But I was the king. He was simply my servant that got me to where I wanted to go. There's a wonderful quote by Tim Keller this week on his Twitter feed, and you know how much I hate Twitter, so to pull this out, this is big time. Tim Keller said, we don't want a king. We want a consultant in the person of Jesus to advise us as we order our lives. Yeah. 
Is that you? Or do you want Jesus to be your king so that you can be his servant and citizen in politics, in conflict, in relationships, in marriage, in obedience? Today, you have a choice to give your life over to Christ and for him to be king rather than yourself. And I would beg of you to do so. If we've done that, and only if we've done that, because that point, if you don't pass that point, the rest don't matter. But secondly, we need to recognize our role within the kingdom. For most of us, we're not going to be quote-unquote heroes of the faith. I don't know about any of you, but I don't have any plans on having crusades for 10,000 people in the next year. Any of you? I wish we did, right? It'd be great if we had somebody who did that in this church, but many of us are not going to be those quote-unquote heroes. But do you realize that in the New Testament, the vast majority of that cloud of witnesses is nothing more than nameless souls who endured persecutions and sufferings and ultimately went to their death for their faith, all the while being heroes in Christ's eyes, but not in the world. They were everyday people like you and me in everyday lives, living the miraculously mundane, trying to make a living, caring for their family, submitting to Christ as king, dealing with conflict in their relationships, serving their church. So each of us, we need to recognize what God has called us to. And that, dear friends, is this, simple obedience. For most of us in this room, our role in the kingdom is far simpler than we want to accept. It is loving those directly around us. It's being obedient in the small things. It's discipling, providing for, and loving our friends and family. It's loving and praying for our enemies. It's evangelizing the non-believing coworkers or neighbors we have. It's voting and participating in local civic politics. It's acting to bring justice where we see injustice and being faithful members of this church. Dear friends, before you want to go bring justice out there, how are you doing in bringing justice in your own relationships? Before you want to deal with all the anger that's across Twitter and in the news, how are you doing in your own relationships in the midst of conflict? Before you want to get the politicians to get along, how are we doing in our marriages and with our kids and with our friends and in the midst of this church? Satan keeps us busy trying to look at the big things that are actually largely out of our control, which leads us to nothing more than ceaseless striving, victimization issues, and acting in the flesh, and stress and anxiety. He tells us that we need to solve all the world's ills while blinding us to the fact that the greatest impact we can actually have is just simply loving those in our friendships, families, church body, and neighborhoods right in front of us, being good stewards of what he has given us. And so number three, dear church, is that to be part of the kingdom, we need to act on what we can control and accept what we cannot. Act on what we can control and accept what we cannot. Many of you have probably seen this graphic that I'm going to put up on the board before, whether you've been in counseling with me or in some of our leadership training. But I use this a lot when I'm talking about this idea. It's called the control box, and it has four quadrants on it, surrounded by two axes that are what we can and cannot control and what we can and cannot act upon. Now, if you want a copy of this for yourself, there's paper copies back there on that little uh, table back there um, before you go today. If we run out, let me know, and I'll, I'll print another one off for you. But what we have here is we have four different quadrants, and up there on the top left, we have something that we can act upon because we also have control of it. And this is where we're empowered. This is where we can use things like self-control. We can operate in our choices. We can have personal responsibility. And when we're running into people who we cannot control, we put boundaries in place. This is where we are empowered. This is where we can act within the empowerment and the sphere of influence that God has given us. If we are in the bottom right box, that bottom box that says, trust Yahweh, this is where we realize we have no control. And so we don't act in self-destruction. We accept the situation and turn to the Lord. We pray and lament because we don't know if we can affect the situation. And so we hand it over to the Lord. That's why prayer and lament is technically it is an action, but it's in what we can't control. And so we give it over to the Lord. We don't know if things will change, but we trust his wisdom, his will, and his just judgment. That's why there's surrender there, prayer and lament and acceptance. And then also, when we're dealing with people who might harm us but are unwilling to repent, 
We practice forgiveness to them and we hand off their sin to the Lord and we trust him to practice his righteous judgment if it needs to be done. But we forgive in order to move forward, letting it go. If we act on what we can't control, up there on uh, the top right, this is where we move into what's called ceaseless striving and self-righteousness. This is where rigidity comes and we start to try and control other people. We seem self-righteous and we even abuse any power that we might have. Now, honestly, we should probably put in that box as well, social media tirades. Because when you speak into the air as if everybody's listening to you, first, it's narcissistic. Nobody's listening. Second, nobody cares. It's ceaseless striving. Better to keep it to yourself. And instead, in the midst of the relationships you already have, sit face-to-face, eye-to-eye with the person you love. And face-to-face, have a discussion in truth so that you can move forward in sanctification. On the bottom left, we have things we can control, but when we don't act, this is the woe is me box where we become victims of all that is going on around us and it becomes everyone else's fault. This is the person who's been given wisdom and maybe even in the midst of conflict, the chance to repent, but they refuse to do it. I would call this also the fool's box, learned helplessness. There we see that we, we say that we don't have choices, that we don't have options, we fail to see them. And so we start to sit in this place of victim. The top right and the bottom left boxes are where we sit when we're in the flesh, leading our own lives, wanting to be king, having a hissy fit when it doesn't go our way. The top left and bottom right boxes are where we are in a place where we can act on the commands of our king and submit to his will and trust his eventual just judgment when it doesn't make sense to us. Rather than get angry, act in what you can and submit the rest to God. This is the path of the Spirit, and this is what kingdom citizens do. Now, dear church, understanding this truth in this graphic will help us to accept our role within the kingdom and act upon what we can control so that we are fulfilling the commands of Christ. Your first application point today is to take this graphic, grab a a copy of it, to take it home and to sit down this week and think through, Lord, where am I acting in each one of these boxes? In what circumstances, in what relationships, in which, which things am I acting in empowerment or in trust or am I acting in ceaseless striving or learned helplessness? And then repent and move as much as you can into those two boxes that are the path of the Spirit. For example, what can we do with politics? It's so good and righteous to just get angry and yell at our TV and get mad. And is that really the kingdom? No, it's not. You know what you can control? You can choose to begin your study of the candidates and the issues, and you can vote early. You can get involved in civic politics. You can be a voice of reason and peace rather than anger and hatred. How about COVID? What do we do with COVID? Well, guys, right now the masks are here to stay. Whether you agree with them or not, let's just practice hygiene, social distance, and wear the mask when we have to and move forward. Stop complaining. How about marriages or friendships? Well, we may not be able to change our spouse, but we can choose to be the spouse we want to be. And by the grace of God, maybe that may influence the other. How about when we're in conflict? What can we control? Well, we may not be able to get the other person to humble themselves or to repent, but we can speak truth and accept responsibility for what we feel convicted in and empathize with the rest of the other person's struggle, hopefully letting the Holy Spirit change their heart so that they might repent. We can submit to the body of believers here at this church when conflict isn't resolved between the two of us so that we can find safety in a multitude of counselors and trust that the Holy Spirit that guides this church in the fullness of the body can also guide me and help me to see my own blindness. How about in the area of isolation? Well, we can pick up our member directory or go online to to Breeze, our member uh, system, and choose to connect or reach out to one person we don't know. And this week, I want to challenge you. If you're already a member and you have access to the members of this church, I want to challenge you to reach out to one person you already know well and one person you don't this week. Check in on them. See how they're doing. If you're new to this church and you don't have access to that, today's a great day. Go up to somebody right at the end of church. People will stand out there in the parking lot and introduce yourself and connect. 
want to challenge you to connect to at least two people this week, one person you know and one person you don't, to bear their burdens and to let them know that they're cared for. And if you've had someone in the church reach out to you and you haven't responded, choose to respond this week and make time for that person. Let them know that you love them by this simple act of response. And if you're a person that feels like you have been reaching out and nobody's responded, can I give you one word? Endurance. Keep trying. If you don't have an underlying health concern, I'd encourage those of you that are still watching from home to come join us and be part of the fellowship of this church. Those of you that are already here, I'm preaching to the choir. Good job. All of these things help to encourage us, to encourage one another. This week, you can also recommit to being a covenant member of this church. I think COVID has got us in this place of isolation and quarantine where the idea of being part of this body has started to splinter. But for those of you that are already members, recommit. And if you're not one, I want to call you to step into the process of committing to this church. I know we have many visitors that are coming because we're one of the few churches that are open in town. Our commitment to one another does not lessen because times are hard. It's exactly in hard times that we need to hold tight to one another and put our differences behind us and pursue Christ and his kingdom together. Dear church, I know that we want to do amazing, great, and wonderful things for the kingdom of God, but we need to begin with what is right in front of us. Paul said the same thing. Most of his uh, statements of application in his letters, if you read them, dear church, what were they for? They were for the people in those churches to love the people in those churches. That's his application. Here's one example from Galatians 6.10. I'm almost done here. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's the global vision. Go love everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Start with what you can control. Act faithfully there, and the Lord will broaden your horizons. And so we need to begin with this idea of what we control, can control and what we can act in. This is step number one to walking within the kingdom. We need to hear the call into the kingdom, recognize our role in the kingdom, act on what we can control. And then lastly, we need to endure in faithfulness. Endure in faithfulness. We are only defeated by our environment and the enemy when we choose to give up. We are only fully disconnected from one another when we choose to give up. If we claim to be Christians, we are claiming that we follow the example of perseverance and endurance even in the face of crucifixion and separation from the Father. We follow the one who is the height and example of courage, faithfulness, and endurance. Endurance is a choice to set our mind on the truth of the kingdom of God, which transcends and surpasses any suffering that we could be facing. And so as we continue in this teaching series based off of Mark 13, about the call to be the kingdom of God in the midst of chaos, we will see how to act in what we can control with regards to hope, obedience, and endurance. And we will be called to be a local outpost of faithful citizens in the kingdom of God. So dear brothers and sisters, as we embark on the next few weeks, let's answer this call together. Amen? Amen. Amen.